0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. And when the crowd found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him has the Father in heaven set his seal. And they said to him, what should we do to be doing the works of God? And he said to them, the work of God is this, that you believe in the one in whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign will you do for us that we may see and believe in you? For our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, they had, he gave them bread from heaven. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. It is my father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. It's great to be back. I think my favorite moment of our holidays was re-entering the United States. Because after three years of secondary screening, every time we came as immigrants into the US, uh, secondary screening is that little room that my daughter calls the room of mirrors. Three years of that, finally this time as we crossed into the United States with our newly minted green cards, the border agents simply looked them over and said to us, Welcome home. It was glorious. It's good to be home. And it's good to be home as we begin this series, looking over the next few weeks at the seven I am statements of Jesus here in John's gospel. Today we begin with Jesus' claim, I am the bread of life. See, in the ancient Near East, we got to realize what bread means. In the West, when we have a meal, what stands at the center of that meal? Come on, this is Texas. It's the meat, right? The meats, and then you build the meal around the meats. But in the ancient Near East, the bread is the center of the meal. You can't have a meal without the bread. The bread is used in often the family meal will be a common bowl laid out in the midst of the household. Everyone has their bread and they're dipping their bread into the bowl. The bread is required for the meal. The bread is like the utensil. The bread means food in the Bible. Jesus says, I'm bread. I am that which gives life and sustains life. Bread, food. But he says he's the bread of life. And what's interesting is in the Greek, there are two words, there's two primary words in Greek for life. The one is the word bios, which is where we get the word biology from, physical life. But then this is other word, zoe, is the word Jesus uses here. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of zoe, zoe life. Zoe is this eternal, full, complete, lasting life. In in some ways, you could say that the two kinds of life in Greek, one is bios, physical life, which is quantitative life. How long do I have in this life? But the other, zoe life, is qualitative. The stuff that makes life worth living, right? We're big on quantitative life these days, right? Everywhere you look, it's all about getting younger, right? Youth is just one purchase away. When we were on vacation, at one point, one of our daughters decided to dye her hair, and I said, oh, so we're all changing our looks. That's great. So I ran and grabbed my razor and shaved off my beard and presented myself to the family to their gasps of horror. I mean, I looked 10 years younger, clearly. There is a younger man under this gray, I swear. But they immediately said, oh, daddy, you can't shave again on this holiday grow that beard back. See, we're so concerned with our quantitative length of physical life, but we so often miss that we really are yearning for a qualitative life, a life that matters, a life that lasts. And so when Jesus says he's the bread of life, what he's saying is, I am what will make life possible, true life possible. I am what will make your life have meaning. I am what makes life worth living. That's what it means when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. No wonder the crowd said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. You see, what we see as we look at this text is that Jesus as the bread of life is singularly satisfying as bread. One thing that we've got to struggle with in this very pluralistic, very relativistic world we live in, which is no different from the day of Jesus, in this world of relativism and pluralism and options, Jesus says, no, I'm it. Singularly satisfying. I am the bread that gives meaning to your life. But not only is he singularly satisfying as bread, but this bread is sacrificial. You see, this bread we find as we look at the life of Jesus has an incredible cost. But it's not a cost that you or I paid. See, this bread is singularly satisfying and this bread is sacrificial. But also we find that this bread is sacramental. Jesus has made a way for this bread to be very near to us. I am the bread of life. So first, this bread is singularly satisfying in verse 25 and 26 here in John's gospel Jesus John writes these words he says when they found him on the other side the crowd said to him rabbi when did you come here and Jesus answered them truly truly I say to you you were not seeking me because you saw the signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves The loaves, you see the context of this whole bread of life passage here in John chapter 6 is that Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's taken five loaves and two fish and miraculously fed 5,000 people and they're amazed at it. And the crowd says, this seems to look a lot like what God did for Israel in the wilderness. Like we read in Deuteronomy here, that God gave them manna from heaven, supernatural bread in the desert. And the crowd is therefore very excited about suddenly what Jesus is doing. So it's because of the bread, because they got their fill of the loaves, that they're yearning to see more of Jesus. And that's why in verse 30 and 31, they're kind of prompting Jesus to do it again, do it again, Jesus. When he tells them that they have to believe in him, what do they say? Verse 30 and 31, they say, um, uh, then what sign will you do so that we may see and believe? I mean, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it is said, they, ate, they were given bread from heaven. What they're saying to Jesus is, do the miracle again, and then we'll believe. They're saying, prove it to me. Prove to me that you are truly God through your provision." You know what's interesting? The crowd ends up sounding a lot like Herod. You know Herod, who will ultimately be part of Jesus' trial. When I was, uh, well, before I was a believer, uh, I played Herod in Jesus Christ Superstar, Um, and Herod is asking for Jesus to prove himself. So you, you are the Christ. You're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're divine. Turn this water into wine. That's all you need do. Then we'll know it's all true. Come on, king of the Jews. But you know what's amazing is we do that exact same thing to God a lot. We say to him, prove to me that I can trust you as you show me your provision. It's what I like to call manna mania. Right? It's the sort of reverse blessing of when God pours out his gifts of provision on us, we have this terrible tendency as human beings to begin to focus on the provision, the gift, the bread that he's given us, and forget about the one who gave the gift. It all becomes focus on the manna, the focus on the gift from God. And our whole worldview turns around on that, We begin to believe that this thing that God has given me is what makes my life work. This thing that God has given me is what makes life worth living. We forget the gift giver and we focus on the gift. But manna mania, or what can sometimes be called the prosperity gospel today, will not give us what we ultimately desire. I mean, verse 49, later in this chapter, Jesus says to the crowd, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. That gift that God gave, that good gift, was a good gift, but it was not enough. Jesus offers a singularly different kind of bread, and this bread he offers will singularly satisfy. He offers himself to us. See, verse 27, Jesus says to them, do not work For the bread that perishes but for the bread that endures the food that endures to eternal life because let's be clear the gifts that God gives us the the perishing food the perishing bread Jesus isn't saying that's bad bread that's good bread much of it all the gifts that God pours out on us good gifts They sustain us, they feed us, they feed our families, they care for us, they protect us, they shelter us. These are good gifts from God. But let's never forget, Jesus says, that they're perishing. These gifts that are given, this bread, this food that perishes is fading away. It will not ultimately deal with the deep eternal hungers that we have. But the problem I find in my own life is that I often am working for food that perishes and I don't mean what you do nine to five Monday to Friday working for food that perishes I mean focus I mean where does my attention end up going that so much of my focus and so much of my attention ends up going towards that perishing bread and not to the one who gave the bread So much of my attention ends up being wrapped up around the gifts that God has given me, but these gifts are perishing. And it's important that we, at time to time, take a barometer reading of our daily life, our loves, our desires, the things that take up our time, our activities, and ask, am I perhaps turning a good gift from God into an idol? That I begin saying to myself, this thing is what really makes life worth living. I broke up with Netflix this summer. It was an ugly breakup. I realized as we began our vacation that I had been spending far too much of my leisure time sitting, doing what many of you in this room have done, which you won't admit, you know, spend an hour in front of Netflix just trying to figure out what to watch on Netflix. You know, I realize that the, the, you know telling stories, and, and I mean, not everything on Netflix is good, there's a lot that isn't, but that which is good storytelling and entertainment these are good things are gifts from God, right? You know, whatever it may be that can distract you and, 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 and entertain you, those can be good things in one sense, but if they grab your attention and your focus too much, they become idols. And we need to cast away our idols, and so. I don't know that Netflix and I will be getting back together. But the point of it is this. This, speaking of bread, is simply what the Bible calls fasting. Right? There are good things in our lives. There's bad things in our lives. That's repentance. Get those out. But there's good things in our lives that at times we need to say, this is taking up too much of my focus. And a fast is saying no to good perishing bread. So that you can focus again on the true bread. As Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Jesus is telling us into this entertainment driven, distracted culture we live in. He says, I am the only bread that will make your life true and truly be worth living. Don't let these other good breads that my father has given you distract you from this one true bread. But you see, this bread is also sacrificial. It's interesting, immediately what the crowd says to him in verse 28 is they say, what shall we do to be doing the works of God? Which is basically saying, okay, then what do we have to do to get it? What do we have to do to earn it? Works, earn. What do I need to do to earn this? I mean, this is the way the world works, right? You find something great and you work hard to earn it, to buy it. And then it's yours. And you can say, I did this and I built this and I worked hard for this. I remember my very first job. I was 10 years old and I was working for my parents. Because at 10 years old, I decided that I wanted for my summer vacation to fly on my own across Canada to visit my aunt and uncle. And my parents said, well, you know, plane tickets cost money. And so I said, well, let's monetize the chore list. I didn't quite say it that way, but that's effectively what I was saying. (laughs) Let's take the chore list and let's add monetary value to each of these things. And then I can earn a plane ticket. And I worked hard. I mean, two months, I did more chores than you could ever imagine. I mean, I'd mow the lawn three times in the same day. And I'd be like, you owe me for each one of those. I earned the plane ticket. And I remember sitting there on the plane and I was so proud all by myself, 10 years old, you know, that little badge around you that says like minor traveling on their own. And, you know, one of the flight attendants came up and said, your parents, my goodness, I mean, you must be so thankful to your parents for sending you on this trip. And I looked to that flight attendant, and I said, I earned every penny of this ticket. <laughs> I mean, this is the way that we treat things of value. We, we say, great, it's valuable. It's important. Hey, this is the bread that gives me life, real life. Well, what do I need, What do I need to do? And what Jesus turns around and says to them is, this is the work of God that you believe in the one who he sent. Well, no, Jesus, I I said, what's the work? Well, the work is believe in God. Essentially, the work is to acknowledge that you can't actually work and earn this. The, The true way you earn this is to recognize you can't earn this. You can only believe you can only trust and receive that which is too valuable and too great for you or I ever to attain or ever to earn we never could earn this before God because like it or leave it you and I even in our best moments are bankrupt before God we have nothing to offer to God for this gift of true life as Tim Keller says, the one work that will earn the bread of heaven is to see that no work will earn the bread of heaven. The way we earn this is to recognize we can't earn this. I can only believe, I can only receive what can be given to me as a gift by grace through faith alone, trusting in the one who is the bread of life. I love Isaiah 55. It gives us this, this picture Of a sinner accepting grace, someone receiving something that they could never afford. Listen to the upside down economics of salvation in the kingdom here in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me, God says, and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. See, this incredible gift that we could never earn, we can only receive by believing it has such a cost we could ever pay it. But don't get me wrong, a great price has been paid for this gift. But you and I didn't pay it. That's why this is sacrificial bread. See, Jesus goes on later in John 6 to say, to be very clear, the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The way that I will give you this life you long for, this true life, this life worth living, this life with God. The way I will give it, the means by which I will give it is my own body being the bread that is dead for you. Dies on your behalf. It's interesting when he says the the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh, of the world the life of the world could be translated as on behalf of the world. It's the language of substitution. It's the language of one sacrificing themselves so that you are not sacrificed. This bread is sacrificial. Second Corinthians 5, Paul says, is the heart of our salvation, the substitutionary atonement that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. This great exchange, which means that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, and he died the death you should have died. And that is the gospel. That is what sacrificial bread is. The bread I will give you, you cannot earn. It can only be received by faith. That's what sacrifice means for Christians. This bread given for us comes at great cost, but it's a cost that we don't pay ourselves. Sacrificial bread. But perhaps all this talk of bread, you know, solely satisfying bread, singularly satisfying bread, and bread that is sacrifice for us is making us all rather hungry, but I don't mean in a physical sense. I mean that as we hear about this bread of life, like the crowd hearing Jesus teach on the bread of life, we begin to pay attention to our own internal hungers, our spiritual deep hungers, saying, if only I could be filled with that bread. See, the challenge is that for some in this room today who maybe aren't yet walking as disciples of Jesus, not yet believers... You may look in on this and say, wow, what an incredible picture, what an incredible claim Jesus is making. And, and you may say, I'm hungry for that. And That's why there's good news here for you. It can be yours today. But for so many others in the room who are already believers, how is it, you may ask, that I can believe that Jesus is singularly Satisfying as the bread of life. And how is it that I can believe that Jesus is the sacrificial bread that has saved me on the cross and yet still feel spiritually hungry? Christian, you may be sitting in the pew today saying, I feel, I believe this, but I still feel spiritually hungry. Thanks be to God, the bread is not just singularly satisfying and sacrificial, but it is sacramental bread. And here's what I mean. It means that God has made a way that this bread could be very near to you and to me. See, in verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. But then he goes on to say this. He says, whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And it's the language of satisfaction. It's the language of having a full belly. It's the language of someone who can say, I'm truly full up of the Lord. Filled. Jesus is promising that happy feeling after feasting, not that unhappy from overfeasting, but that happy feeling with a full belly after feasting, that fullness. And if you're a believer, you may well, I'm sure, know at times in your life what this has felt like, times when you have felt full with the gospel filled with the love of God and just feel it's overflowing from you but as a Christian you may also know times and you do know times when you feel almost empty I believe but I feel spiritually absolutely empty and in those times when you feel empty as a Christian and you look around and you see the full Christians all around you they're kind of glowing they drive you nuts don't they like what what makes them so happy and so full And if you're a non-believer and you're looking at this, there'll be times, I remember as a non-believer visiting church and meeting people who were just filled, you know, filled with God and so excited and just effervescent and glowing. And I thought, this is a cult. (laughs) These people are nuts. And it was only until I felt that filling myself that I realized, no, this is real. This is a promise from God that we would be filled Filled with the bread of heaven. Filled with God's own presence. Filled with the promises of the gospel. Overflowing. But there will be times as Christians when we will feel very spiritually hungry. Very spiritually empty. And you know, this is the number one reason why people leave church. Is they go through a disappointment. They're confronted with a pattern of sin or failure in their lives. And they come to the conclusion... Because they assume everyone else is filled up with God and I'm spiritually empty. They say, well, I guess Christianity didn't take for me. But it's not the truth. The truth is we've just, for a season, forgot how to feed and forgot how near the bread is to us. You see, God has done not just the amazing thing of being this sacrificial bread for us, but he's given us this bread in a sacramental way. And what I mean by that is a bread that is tangible and present and near. You see, so many religions, and ideologies would say if you wanna you know, spiritually grow and be full, you're gonna have to climb a mountain. Like you're gonna have to go and, and do all these great spiritual exercises and, and be kind of the, you know, go through heroics and all kinds of great feats of great morality. And then maybe God will reward you with some kind of, you know, filling up of spiritual life. But instead, verse 33 says that the bread of heaven is the one who's come down. From heaven to give life to the world. God comes to us and makes himself available and near and present. And you may say, well, that was great. That was, you know, that was Jesus 2,000 years ago walking with the disciples. No. Do you remember in the story? As he came to the last meal with his disciples before his death, what did he do? He went back to this bread of life story, but this time he used the metaphor in a very different way. He took a loaf of bread in front of them at the last supper, and what did he say? After he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this so that you will always remember the gospel truth about yourself you will always remember who you are and you will live into this full life because I am not leaving you I am not forsaking you I will be with you and every time you gather for worship I am here and I've given you this bread in worship every time you gather that you may kneel and put out your hands and receive and be fed and reminded again that you You can be full literally full of the bread from heaven this is what communion is for us Jesus present to us in a special way in the midst of worship when I discovered Anglican liturgy I think the thing that struck me most was the fact that we did this weekly I thought wow communion every week Won't that get stale, mind the pun? And then I realized, no, I need to be filled again. Every time we gather, I need this worship experience of word and sacrament together, God's word to feed on, but also God's sacramental bread to feed on to be reminded and filled again with the truth of the gospel. And it doesn't matter whether I come to the rail feeling that I've been a hero for Jesus this week or whether I come to the rail feeling I've been a loser for Jesus. He says, kneel, put out your hands and let me feed you that which you could never earn because I am determined to fill your life. What does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? It means that he alone is what makes true life possible. It means that he alone is what will make our life worth living. We will find as we walk with Jesus that he is singularly satisfying us as the bread of life. That this bread of life is sacrificial. We did not pay for it. He paid for it with his body. And we find, as we follow Jesus, that it is sacramental. It's interesting as the rest of John six goes on, and Jesus talks about the need for you to feed on my flesh. When he says those words, he's saying it in what's called a present tense. He's, it's continuing. He means, don't just feed on me once. You got to keep feeding, keep feeding on me, and be filled. As a Sri Lankan pastor, D.T. Niles, says, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Lord, give us this bread always.